You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay, good afternoon, and we're ready today to start today's class on Parshas Vayishlach, as we're moving along with the story of Yaakov and his sons, Yaakov leaving Lovin's home, encountering Esau. <clears throat> so about 1971, what is that, about 50 years ago, there was this fascinating study that was done, a study that was done in University of Stanford, I'm sure you heard of it because it really... Um, flopped. (laughs) It was a study that was done in the University of Stanford, in the basement of the University of Stanford, and it was run by a fellow, Philip Zimbardo. And the study was to take random people, they took 15 random people, and I think a total of 30 random people, and they made 15 of them prisoners and 15 of them jail keepers, Hmm. you know, uh, the policemen. And they were going to, and the way they decided who should be a policeman and who should be a uh, who should be a jailkeeper, who should be a jailer, and who should be a prisoner, was by the toss of a coin. And the way they did it, they went and they arrested the people in Palo Alto. They made as if they were prisoners and they put them in, and they gave them the the rules were that the jailers were the ones that were going to decide the rules of engagement of how they were going to treat the prisoners, and the prisoners were given these clothings that they were exposed to wear, no underwear and very embarrassing clothing. And they had to wear these special caps and the jailers were wearing their special uh, clothing as well as they were the jailers. And as they put them in, they locked them up into their cabins, into their cells. And the first day, all of a sudden, the prisoners started making a ruckus and not following to the rules. And the first thing they did was take off their garb. So the jailers tried to impose and enforce the rules. And the first thing they tried to enforce the rules was that they locked them up in their place. And then they started getting out. So they took the fire extinguisher and started shooting it at them. And then they locked them in and they didn't let them go to the bathroom. And they had to use the own pail. Bottom line was that after five days, because of the aggressiveness of what was going on and the um, inhumane and unethical behavior, I think that was the actual terminology that was used, they had to stop the study. And what they saw was over here was an interesting thing how people who were, when given power, did certain behaviors that maybe they wouldn't have done otherwise. And why they even resorted to doing such type of behaviors was in itself a question. But the bottom line is that it was so bad that they had to stop the study in the middle. So without going into the uh, education if it was correct or it wasn't correct, if the study should have happened, shouldn't have happened, and why they stopped the funding for it and whatever it may be. But the bottom line is, there's many times where people are given, so to speak, a certain level of authority, and they abuse the authority. Whether it can be a teacher, whether it's a policeman, whether it's any type of, type of way of enforcement, that sometimes that when given the opportunity to enforce a certain rule or edict, whatever it may be, People go a little too far in enforcing because they have the power and therefore they are going to do whatever is in their power to make the underpinning or the person that's their um, jurisdiction over to be able to put fear in them or whatever it may be. And therefore the question is, and what we're going to analyze today, 
from the story of Yaakov and his sons, and in this week's Torah reading, is how we, when given authority and power, to use it in an appropriate way, and when we can call it an abuse of power, and where we can see where people do abuse that right of power, and what it comes from, and what purpose it serves, and how counterproductive it can be. So let's go back to this week's Torah reading. And in this week's Torah reading, our core question is going to surround about the fact where Yaakov, in the middle of this week's Torah reading, and we'll get to where it gets to in a moment, we see that he seemingly agrees with what his children do, but then later on on his deathbed, he rebukes them for what they've done. And the question is, does he agree with them or doesn't he agree with them? Did what they do was right or wrong? So let's find out what we're talking about here. And by analyzing the story, we will also come to see that sometimes the action could be correct, but the way it's done is incorrect. So what happens here? So let's go back a little bit and let's just have a little recap of this week's Torah reading we were up to, and then we'll get to the crux of our stories that we're talking about. This week, Yaakov is leaving Lovin's home. Last week already he left Lovin's home. And this week he's on his way back to the land of Israel to go back home to see his parents. On the way, he first sends messengers to find out to see who's coming to greet him, what the entourage is there to look out, to, to look out for. And he hears that Esav is coming with 400 men, not only 400 men, but according to some commentaries, he was coming with 400 generals that each one had a party of 400 men and they definitely weren't just saying hello to Yaakov. But Yaakov first introduces gifts, prayer, prepares for war, whatever it takes to be able to appease his older brother. Finally, they meet face to face. They get along. Everything comes out fine. Kumbaya, they're doing great. Esav goes home. Yaakov continues to travel. Yaakov settles in a place called Sukkot. And he sits there for Sukkot for about a year and a half. And he's sitting there on his way, traveling home. He settles in a place called Sukkot. Right outside Sukkot, there's another city, which is called Shechem. And he decides to buy real estate, like a good Jewish guy who buys real estate. And he buys the city of Shechem, which the city of Shechem all of a sudden starts to happen, problems coming his way. Now there are some commentaries that explain why the problem started coming his way was because <clears throat> Yaakov promised before he left, God told him, you, he, God told him, I will protect you. And he promised to God, should I be protected? And everything happens in the right way. When I come back to the city of Kel, where God promised him that everything would be okay, he would bring a sacrifice and tell God, thank you very much for that you saved my life. But what happens? He comes, he's protected, he's protected from love and he's protected from Esau. Nothing happens to him. But does he actually bring the sacrifice? Instead, he decides to go on vacation. For a year and a half, he's spending his time in Sukkot. Instead of going to Basel, where he was supposed to go there and bring the sacrifice. What happened to the promise he made? What happened to the guarantee that he told God, if you will protect me, I will bring a sacrifice? What happened to it? He waited a year and a half until he will decide to go back there and he hasn't. In fact, the sages tell us that because Yaakov delayed in keeping his promise, the problems with Dina occurred. And in fact, Code of Jewish Law brings from here different laws that saying that what is very common, that what happens with people is that when they're in trouble, they make all the promises. I'll do this, I'll do this, and I'll do that. And all of a sudden, everything works out. 
and quickly they forget what they promised. Code of Jewish law actually puts it and codifies it and says with a person that promises to give to charity, only promise to give to charity what you have now in your bank account. Because if you start promising and you don't keep it, it's even worse than if you never gave it. So make sure that when you promise, one should be able to keep to what he does. So what happens? So this is the punishment for him for not keeping to his word, so to speak, the commentaries tell us. But what was the punishment? Dina. Dina takes a walk. She takes a stroll in the new neighborhood that her father lives in. And Dina is now captured by the people of Shechem and raped. Now why Dina? This also interesting has an interesting commentary. That over here, Dina, according to Mary, the Rashi over here brings the commentary, why was Dina the one that was, why was he punished with Dina? Because if you recall in the beginning of this week's Torah reading, Yaakov comes to greet Esav. And the Torah enumerates his whole family. They all go and they bow down to Esav and they welcome him. And the only person that's not there is Dina. So the Torah says, where's Dina? And the Talmud explains that Dina was hid in a box because he was concerned, should Esav see Dina, he might want to take Dina. And in fact, the Talmud says, and for that exact reason, Yaakov was punished with Dina. Because if Esav would have seen Dina, Dina would have inspired him to repent and he would have become better. Because Dina and Leah, because Dina was the daughter of Leah, come from such a place like we explained previously, that Leah comes from a place of a Baal Teshuva, a place of the penitent, where they have the ability to go even reach higher than a tzaddik. Rachel came from the level of a tzaddik. Leah was the level of Baal Teshuva to reach even higher. They had the power to bring within a person and reveal within the individual the tshuva. And because he hid that opportunity from, Le- from Esav, he was not able, she was now punished, and he was punished. I heard the punishment and the disruption that happened in his life happened with Dina. Because we find in other cases in Jewish history, for example, in the story of Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Yishlakish, and Rishlakish, two great Talmudic scholars, Rishlakish was considered a, one of the head of the mafia, head of the bandits. He was springing, sprinting across the river, and he sees Rabbi Yochanan, and Rabbi Yochanan was bathing there, and Rabbi Yochanan turns to Rishlakish and says, with such strength, if you would only dedicate it to Torah, you would be a great Torah scholar. And Rishlakish, who was a smart guy, and answered back and said with such beauty, because he was bathing himself, if you would be a woman, it would be wondrous. So he says, you know what? If you want my sister, he tells Rishlakish, who is even more beautiful than I, you repent, you'll be able to get my sister. And with that, Rishlakish repented, and he became one of the greatest students of Rabbi Yechanan, to the extent Rabbi Yechanan couldn't even live, literally, without him. So we see that there are cases where people get inspired by women that bring them to do the right thing. And over here, if Dina would have been out of the box, she, Esav, would have seen her, then it could have transformed the family and made Esav into a great person. But unfortunately, Yaakov thought otherwise and kept Dina in the box and therefore did not have the opportunity to change Esav. They say an interesting thing. A, some, a rabbi once gave a, a nice commentary, he explained, he said, Leah, if we look at last week's Torah reading, Leah was crying. Her eyes were soft because she didn't want to marry Esau. Maybe Yaakov understood if Leah didn't want to marry Esau, why then should Dina want to marry Esau? And what was the reason Leah should have married Esau and she could have changed him? Why wouldn't Dina, why do you think Dina would be able to change him and Leah couldn't? And say the difference would have been, Leah would have been going on her own. So maybe she would have been successful, maybe yes, maybe not. 
But Dina, Yaakov would have sent her. She would have had the power of a tzaddik behind her. She for sure would have been successful. But let's go back to our story. So Leah, so Dina is captured by the people of Shechem. And the people of Shechem rape her and um, hurt her emotionally, physically, and abuse her in every way possible. And because of that, and who was the one that did it? Was the leader of the people of Shechem. And with that, the children of Yaakov hear what happened to their sister. They come back from the field, as the Torah tells us, hearing what happened to their sister. And they say, how is this possible? That our sister should be able to... That our sister was used as a harlot and was abused by the people of the land. And therefore they decide that they're going to take revenge and they wipe out every male of the people of Shechem. Wipe them all out. Yaakov comes back. And Yaakov says, what did you do? And they answered, what do you want? You want our sister to be like that? They should be able to take advantage of the Jewish people and we should just stand by and be quiet? We have to, <coughs> excuse me, we have to stand up and protest. And that's what we did. And that's where seemingly the story ends with Yaakov's response. But then all of a sudden, fast forward three Torah readings, four Torah readings, the end of, of Yaakov's lifetime. Yaakov's lying on his deathbed. And Yaakov calls in his children and he wants to give them a blessing before his passing. He calls in Reuven and says, Reuven, you know, really, you should have been the firstborn, but because you were too quick in moving the beds, that was last week's Torah reading. Uh, I'm sorry, this week at the end where he moves Leah's bed into his tent without permission. That's it. You lost that opportunity. Then he calls in Shimon and Levi and tells Shimon and Levi and he says, listen here, what you did, what you did, you killed people. And because you killed people, you took from the Aesop's type of behavior. And you're going to be spread apart amongst the nations, amongst the rest of the tribes. And he ridicules them for what they've done wrong. Why do you wait so long? Let's look at his response in this week's Torah reading. His response in this week's Torah reading was, Shimon Alevi, you embarrassed me. Now all the nations of the world are going to say, we can't trust these people. Because what was the trick that Shimon and Levi did? They told the people of Shechem, you want to take our sister? No problem. But the deal is you all have to circumcise yourself. And if you circumcise yourself, then we'll all participate together. We'll become one big family. And you'll be able to marry my family. We'll be able to your family. And everything will be wonderful. What happens? They circumcise themselves. On the third day of circumcision, Shimon and Levi go and wipe out the whole city in Shechem. So what does Yaakov tell his children? Nobody's going to trust us anymore. You now told the people of Shechem. Then why are you telling them to have a circumcision? Because since you're not going to be able to keep your sister. And instead, what did you do? You went and killed them. How's anybody going to ever trust a Jew again? But does Yaakov condemn them for what they're killing them? doesn't condemn them for killing. He just said, maybe, uh, you know, we got a problem on our hand. A PR problem. He was only looking at the PR problem. He didn't say that the killing was the issue. Or even according to some commentators, want to explain that even fact even more so. What brought it back the Jewish people's protection from now? Because nobody wanted to start up with the Jews now. They saw how strong they were. You crossed them the wrong way. That's it. You're done. So in fact, what Yaakov was telling them was, you made us, so to speak, that everybody else should be ashamed of us. Meaning that now you gave us strength, power that everybody's afraid. So from that perspective... Yaakov is actually complimenting them. So what's going on over here? Was Yaakov happy with what they did? 
Or was Yaakov not happy with what he did? Seemingly in this week's Torah reading, he just has a problem with the PR. Or even according to some commentaries, he sees that there's strength in their might. And because of that, people will be afraid of them. Or was he upset at what they did? As we see in the Torah reading, the last Torah reading on his deathbed, where he calls them in and he says, you learned your methods of killing from your uncle. Who kills? Asaph kills. We don't kill. We're not that type of people. You guys are too zealous, too anxious to be able to kill people. You need to be spread apart. He says, from because of that, you're going to have to move and live. And that's why the tribe of Levi lived 42 cities scattered throughout the Jewish people. Because he didn't want too many of them in one place because of their methods and tools of anger or their tools of killing. So the question is, was Yaakov angry at his children? And if he was angry, why did he wait until his deathbed to tell them what they did wrong? And if he wasn't angry, why did he bring it up when they died? When he died. Even more so, the question goes, we're not talking about over here, you run out of mill people. You're talking about holy individuals. And these holy individuals went and killed a whole entire city of people. Why would they go and kill people if they're innocent? And even if they're not innocent, what did they do so wrong? That they deserve to be killed? That holy people who eventually their children would be wearing the high priest in the holy temple. We're not talking about the regular plain clothes individual. They got, individual, got a little angry and upset. Somebody crossed them and therefore they went and killed them. We're talking about Shimon and Levi. Holy individuals. That they go and they start using this type of warfare to be able to kill out such type of people. Look back at their family. Avram. When he heard that the people of Sodom were going to be killed. What did he say? How dare you God? Maybe just one righteous person. How come Shimon and Levi didn't look for the righteous people in Shechem to save them? But they went out and wiped them all clean. Even their own father Yaakov, in the beginning of this week's Torah reading, when they had sees that there are 400 men coming to kill him, Yaakov was ready for war. But what was his concern? Maybe I'll kill somebody innocently. And over here, their own sons, we don't see that concern. We don't see Yaakov having that concern. We don't see Yaakov saying, oh, you killed innocent people. Yaakov doesn't say that. Yaakov says, I got a PR problem. People are going to be upset. And where are we going to travel? What are people going to think of us? Or even at the end in Parshat Vayechi, what does he say? Over there he says, well, you guys have anger. You learned from your uncle. Why are you killing people? But what was his real problem here? Maimonides and Nachmanides discuss this. And it's interesting that Maimonides and Nachmanides both take a different angle. Maimonides prefers to look at it from this week's Torah reading, while Nachmanides prefers to look at it from the last Torah reading in Parshat Vayechi. Maimonides says as follows, and says that really Shimon and Levi were justified in killing the people of Shechem for a very single obvious reason, which is that the people of Shechem were Noahites. They had to follow the Noahide laws. According to Jewish law, a Noahite who doesn't follow the Noahide laws is liable of capital punishment. What were the Noahide laws that they had to follow, which is one of them, is keeping laws of justice. Being that keeping laws of justice means that you have to be an honorable, protected citizen in keeping ethics of amongst people. And therefore, in cases where there needs to be a judgment that has to be put up, you have to set up judgment that people should follow the laws. 
that there should be normal, that people should be able to get along. Now what happened over here? These people, the people of Shechem, took a woman off the street and they raped her. They were liable of capital punishment for doing something which was against the Ochaid laws. Not only that, you may ask, what did all the people do wrong? It was one person that raped them. But everybody in the city of Shechem acknowledged it, celebrated it, and wanted to participate. As we see later on in the Torah reading, the Torah tells us, Asher timu that they all made their sister impure. They all damaged her. They all abused her. And therefore, he uses a terminology when they come together and they have that meeting and he tells them that you have to circumcise if you want my sister. The whole entire people of Shechem were on board. That means they were all on board with this act that their leader did. And because they were part and parcel of this act, not only did they not condemn it, but they celebrated it and cheered it on, they were just as liable and liable for capital punishment as well. That's Maimonides' theory. And therefore, Shimon Alevi did nothing wrong by killing them. However, Nachmanides differs. And Nachmanides says that according to Jewish law, a Noahide is only liable of capital punishment only if they actively do something wrong. Just being a participant or just being an observer or, non or just somebody on the side, a non-active member of the, of the sin doesn't cause you capital punishment, only an active member. And therefore, the only one here that would be liable of capital punishment would be Shechem himself, Hamor, the one that actually did the sin. But the other ones, they are not liable of capital punishment. Why then did Shimon Alevi go and kill them? Was because, as we can see in the Torah reading, the people of Canaan, let's put it mildly at that time, were not considered the most ethical of all people. The Torah uses the terminology when it tells the Jewish people how they should behave, do not behave like the people of Canaan. So let's say that the people living in the city of Canaan before the Jews moved there and took over were not the most appropriate behaved people. Because of that, Shimon and Levi said, listen here, these fellows living in Shechem, they do not behave according to the Noahide laws. Rape was one thing that one person did, but there's plenty of other problems they do. And therefore, we today, Shimon and Levi said, we are the judges, we are the rulers, we are the Jewish people that have to enforce the punishment, and therefore we are going to give them capital punishment. However, Yaakov said, one second, who paid you in charge? Who told you that you can go decide and make and decide punishment to the people? That's not your business. True, they may not be behaving appropriately. True, what they did was wrong. But you are not the ones to bring out the punishment. And because of that, yes, at the time, while they were all in the fervor and the excitement in this week's Torah reading, Yaakov doesn't tell them anything. But when things calm down, and it's right before his passing, he says, just by the way, that was in your place. You were not the ones that had to, be, to bring the punishment on the people of Shechem. And because of that, he doesn't ridicule them in this week's Torah reading, but he ridicules them right before his passing. So we see from Nachmanides that, what the people of, that the people of Shechem, though they were guilty for what they did wrong, it was not Shimon and Levi's position, according to Yaakov, to kill them. Therefore, in this week's Torah reading, he doesn't rebuke them because he, they were still in the excitement and the fervor because what they did was correct, but he didn't feel they were the ones that should have done it. The problem still is, 
if what they did was incorrect, that they shouldn't have been the one to kill them. And according to Yaakov, Shimon and Levi was none of their business getting involved. He should have said something right away. Right before your passing, by the way, what happened 20 years ago, you shouldn't have done. What does that help? How does that help the situation, A, to make sure they don't do it again? B, how does that help correcting what they've done wrong? It doesn't seem correct. And therefore, there must be a deeper problem, a reason why Yaakov didn't address it right away, or the way he addressed it, to what Shimon and Levi did wrong, and why he only addressed it later on. And interestingly, the Rebbe, in a footnote, in one of his talks, in a small little footnote, shows and gives an answer to this whole perplexed question, just from one quick verse that we see in the Torah reading. That between this story and the story in Parshas Vayechi and Yaakov's deathbed, another story happened. Another story where Shimon and Levi were at the center of attention. And another story where Shimon and Levi want to take somebody's life. And that is, after this story of the story of Shechem, where they wipe out the city of Shechem and the Jewish people keep on traveling, Yosef becomes a little bit of a thorn amongst his brothers. And Yosef starts telling his brothers about dreams he's going to have and how he's going to be the leader and he's going to be the ruler. And all of a sudden, what happens? Yosef comes to tell his brothers to check on them from his father. Shimon and Levi turn to each other and say, Hey, here's the dreamer. Let's teach this dreamer what's going to be with his dreams. Let's throw him into one of the holes and we'll already take his garment, mix it in blood. We'll bring it to father and say that some animal killed him and we'll do away with this dreamer. What did we see over here? These same people who were fighting for the family were now fighting with the family. These same people who went along and wiped out a whole city of Shechem. Why? Because their sister was being raped. Abused. All of a sudden now, they also have somebody in the family that they feel also is making a problem and we got to get rid of him. All for legitimate reasons. He wants to be a ruler. Who gives him the right? All of a sudden, when something happens twice with the same people, you got to ask yourself, something doesn't smell right. When it's always the same person standing up, ready to kill, ready to shoot the gun, different scenarios, you got to ask yourself the question, what's really behind this person? What's really bothering them? What's really waking them up? You know, they used to say a guy that really gets into a fight with everybody in the shul, he probably gets into a fight with the people in his house as well. Where there's, somebody, there's always something, a person who makes fights, the fights are not just limited to one person. If they're fighting with this person and they're fighting with that person, they're fighting with another person, they're probably fighting with somebody else as well. What is Yaakov saying here? When Yaakov said this to them in the actual blessings right before he's passing, Yaakov tells them the words, With their anger they killed a man and with their desire they uprooted an ox. Yaakov was telling them, he was making clear and saying, you know why? Yes, you may have had a valid point to kill the people of Shechem. They were murderers. They were rapists. They were people that went against Noahide laws. Everything was right. But why is it that you're always the one that are coming to the front to say, okay, we're here to kill. Why are you always the one that are in the front? Why are you the ones that are always recognizing that this is the problem? 
it looks like that you have the aggressive problem. You have some type of zealousness within you that you want to be able to always look to destroy to, to be able to make a conflict. If so, Yaakov says, I got to scatter you amongst all the tribes. I can't leave you all together. You can't stay together because when you're together, you only make problems. What Yaakov saw, what Yaakov saw was that when they killed, when they wanted to kill Yosef, that showed retroactively, in retrospect, what their intentions were when they were protecting Dina. That it wasn't only just to protect Dina, but there was also a certain zealousness within themselves that they had to get out of their system and they just used the story of Dina. Why? Because they did it again and they were willing to do it again by Yosef. That means that they had a certain inclination of evil within themselves that he said that we need to uproot. There's an unbelievable story with Rapil Paracher. Rapil Paracher was one of the well-known Hasidim of the second Chabad Rebbe. In fact, the second Chabad Rebbe, Mittler Rebbe, who yesterday was his Chagagula, uh, the day he was released from prison, and the day before was his yard site. He, in fact, wrote a book specifically for Bilal Paracher. Bilal Paracher was considered even a half a Rebbe, they used to say. That's how he was a very saintly man. Bilal Paracher, when he was a great scholar, a great Hasidic thinker, he initially was a, um, a student of Chernobyl, a Hasid of Chernobyl. And once he heard a Hasidic discourse from the student of the Alta Rebbe, his name was Rabzalman Zesmer. And he heard a discourse from Rabzalman Zesmer and he said, this is what the Alter Rebbe said. I'm leaving Chernobyl. I'm becoming a Chassid Alter Rebbe. And he decided he's going to go find the Alter Rebbe. And it so happened to be every single town he came to, the moment he came to that town, the Alter Rebbe left. He always missed him. The moment he came, the Alter Rebbe left. The moment he came, the Alter Rebbe left. And this happened one time, a second time, a third time, a fourth time. Finally, he came up with an idea. He found out from the people of where the Alter Rebbe travels, which town is the Alter Rebbe going next to. He says, let me get there before the Alter Rebbe gets there. So that's what he did. He got there before the Alter Rebbe got there. And he decided he's going to hide under the table where the Alter Rebbe says his chassidus. I'm like, the Alter Rebbe gets there. And he even prepared in his mind a very difficult question in the tractate of Erchin. The tractate of Erchin talks about of how a person takes value of what himself is and wants to dedicate it to the Holy Temple, how you evaluate each individual. And he had a difficult question in Erchin that he was going to ask the Alter Rebbe. He's sitting under the table. He hears the Alter Rebbe and the entourage come into the room. And the Alter Rebbe starts before anybody has a chance. And the Alter Rebbe says, There's a young man who has a question in the tractate of Erchin. Let him first evaluate himself before he asks his question. Rabbi Hill Parcha heard this, he fainted. By the time he revived, the Alter Rebbe was gone. <laughs> he realized that he won't see the Alter Rebbe, and then event that, and the reason was because the Alter Rebbe wanted that he should stay connected to his son, which was the Nittler Rebbe, and that what he recognized. But what did he see from that? What was the Alter Rebbe telling him? Before we go to start correcting the world, before we start killing people, before we start using our arms or things or whatever it may be, we have to ask ourselves the question, what am I worth? What is my value? What did I do? Why am I doing this? And this is one of the things that we take the same idea. One of the very famous questions are asked in a similar vein. Why was Pharaoh punished? What did Pharaoh do wrong? 
He enslaved, you're going to say, of course, he enslaved the Jewish people for 400 years, 210 years. They for Jewish people, slavery, 6 million Jews under slavery, whatever it was, 3 million Jews. But one second, a few weeks ago we read, God told Abraham that the Jewish people will be slaves in Egypt. He's merely doing what God asked him. Why is he getting punished? If the Jewish people have to be enslaved in Egypt, and afterwards they're going to come out with great wealth, and that was part of the plan, why then is Pharaoh getting punished? He's just merely doing what God asked. The difference is because Pharaoh could have done, first of all, Pharaoh could have said, God, go find somebody else to do your dirty work. But the fact that he volunteered <coughs> to be God's messenger, to be the one to enslave the Jewish people, okay, number one. But how did he do it? With the aggressiveness and the zealousness and the anger and to be able to do it to the Jewish people and punish them to the furthest extent, he already all of a sudden started taking it into his own hands. It was no longer God's message. He already was enjoying it too much that it became part of it, and that's why he was punished. The same thing they say about Shimshin, Samson. It says Samson married Delilah, and because Samson found favor, so to speak, looked at Delilah's looks, and because of that he was punished with his eyes, that the Polishtim, Philishtim poked at his eyes. The question, and he asked, what do you mean he looked at Delilah? He married her, it was destined that he should marry her, wasn't it right? It may have been destined for him to marry her, but why was he attracted to her? Not because it was destined from God, but because he himself wanted, to be, wanted her. And because of that, he was punished because of it. There's a difference when we approach something because I want it, I'm enjoying it, or because God told me to do it. Shimon and Levi, the same thing in our case. When they went ahead and went to kill the people of Shechem, there could have been a thousand legitimate reasons of why they should have done it. But the moment they started enjoying it, they mixed in their own emotions, it was no more godly. It was all of a sudden personal. How do we know that it was not godly and it became personal? Because what happened by Yosef. All of a sudden over there as well, what happens is they want to kill somebody. All of a sudden we see this is a tendency that this individual has. It's no longer something that they're looking to see fulfill the godly purpose. They're looking to be able to express themselves through killing and anger and so on. This exact point is what the Rebbe tells us and what we have to learn the lesson in everything in life. There may be things that are 100% correct. Whether it's an education to your children, education your students, and telling somebody off, whatever it may be. It can be a thousand percent correct. But the question is, how are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you have a personal vendetta against that person? Or because what that person's doing is wrong? All of a sudden, you're becoming idealistic. Why idealistic about them and not about somebody else? Because that person you can't stand. And now you found an opportunity, an axe to grind with them. So you're using God, you're using Torah, you're using Judaism, you're using your own, whatever it may be, to be able to create your vendetta. What's the way to avoid it? What's the way to make sure such a thing doesn't happen? And therefore it tells us the best thing to do it is to wait. You don't have to respond. Who says you have to respond right away? When you're angry and you're upset, don't respond. We even see the mistake of anger. Even Moses made that mistake. That he got angry and responded right away and because of that his knowledge, his wisdom, the response wasn't there. When we get angry, all of a sudden it gives us an angle that we, don't, we shouldn't look at the proper way. 
It gives us an angle that all becomes skewed and perverted and doesn't allow us to see the detail, the length of time, what's going to happen. When we allow things to settle, we're able to see the repercussions, we're able to see the future, we're able to see what can happen. And what happens is, anger, the only thing that happens from anger is only destruction. Nothing good ever comes out of anger. Well, like somebody once told me, he says, I never regretted something I didn't say. You'll regret things you did say, but you'll never regret things you didn't say. And anger gives us that opportunity to say things that we shouldn't. There was a, I, uh, there was a rabbi that once the rabbi told him, this was back in the time, he said, if what happens if I have to spank my child? He's doing something so terrible that I have to spank him. And the rabbi told him, even if it comes, really, you shouldn't spank him. But even if it comes to a case that you need a spank, it should never be done out of anger. Mm-hmm. There's a story that's brought in Sefer Hasidim about a, father, about a child who used to respect, his, great respect for his parents. His father asked him that after he passes to respect him as well. So he says, what do you mean respect you after you pass? So he says, I'm commanding you that whenever you're angry, sleep over it. Sleep on it. Don't react. Wait until the next morning. And whenever you're angry, don't say anything. Hold back. Keep your mouth shut. Please, that was the only thing he asked him. After his father passed away, this fellow was a businessman. He had to go for a long extended amount of time for business those days, going on a boat and going far away. It was, took a long time. When he left, his wife was pregnant. Came back many, many years later. He comes back into his home. And he hears in his bedroom his wife talking to a young man. And his wife is talking to a young man and the young man's giving his wife a kiss. He pulls out his dagger. He's about to go into it and says, what kind of business I leave and my wife's having an affair? I'm going to kill both of them. He remembers what his father told him. You're angry? Sleep on it. He wakes up the next morning, puts it back, calms down walks into the room and as he walks into the room his wife turns to the young man that's there and says here's your dad we were just talking about that we need to find a shidduch for you already he says if I thank God I'd listen to my father or else I would have killed my wife and my son at the same day when we're angry we do things irrational when we're angry we behave in ways that are irrational and therefore anger derails an individual that causes them to do things. It could be 100% right. But if you're doing it out of anger, your method and way of doing it is not going to be correct. Number two, is we always, as we learn from this story, even the person that made something wrong, that did something wrong, they also have feelings. Even a person, even if you feel 100% that that person's wrong, but they're also human. And people make mistakes. And people do things wrong. Imagine for a moment if you were the one that did something wrong. How would you want somebody to judge you? How would you want somebody to react to you? In fact, the Talmud says something very fascinating. Love your fellow as yourself. Pick for him the best death. What does that mean? The Talmud is telling you that even if you have to kill somebody, even if you have to do something which is painful, respect that individual recognize that they're a human being as well. They have a family. They have people. They did something wrong. You're right. 
but how would you want to be treated if you did something wrong? Think about the repercussions. Recognize, love that person as yourself, that if you would do something wrong, what would you want? Your judgment should be, it's very easy for us to say, yeah, throw them behind bars, do that, do that, do this. Think a moment. If you were the one making the mistake, if you were the one doing something wrong, how would you want somebody to react to you? And number three and number one is, and number three is, could we also be number one? Never attack people. Meaning, you can disagree with somebody, you can have a different opinion in politics, you can have a different opinion in religion. It's not the person you're disagreeing with. It's the idea you're disagreeing with. The Rebbe had many different opponents in many different times who didn't like what the Rebbe did for whatever reason may be. The Rebbe never once attacked an individual. Ideas he disagreed with, even in the most secular, the most religious. It was ideas, but not people. We have to make sure that every single human being, we can love every person, and therefore people have this biggest question. In fact, Alan Dershowitz once asked the Rebbe, how is it possible that he was giving the Chabad, it wasn't the Rebbe, the Chabad was honoring some, I think it was a black senator or something, who was a very known association with Farrakhan. And the Rebbe asked, how can, and he asked the Rebbe, how can Chabad give this person a platform? So the Rebbe answered, number one, we are not, he's, first of all, it's not the Rebbe, there was a Chabad dinner someplace else that was doing it. And said, so number two, they're not giving a platform to the person, to, to what his ideas, they're giving a platform because he's a senator and therefore they're honoring his position, not his opinions. And he says, number three, when we honor a person with that position, then we can use that position for what may be. Alan Dershowitz Wright says the story. It happened to be later on that this individual, I forgot the senator, I think it was Jesse Combs, I think it was. It was later on, he was the senator who was the, from the biggest supporters of Israel. Why? Because instead of ousting him, they respected his position and utilized him for what he has. At the end of the day, we can disagree with ideas. We don't have to disagree with people. The bottom line is that what we see is that in every single case, teaches, Hasidism teaches us, that in every action that we do, we have to remember there's a reaction. And not only should we remember that there's a reaction, but we have to be able to refine our actions, that they should be so clean and pure that it should only be used for the right purpose. We can be having, we can have the greatest intentions in mind, but if it comes out in the wrong way, if it's expressed the wrong way, just like Shimon and Levi, and how do we know because of what happened later on, it can be all for in vain. Every single one of us has a job that we have to be able to get along with the, in the next person. It says that God created this world and the greatest vessel to have blessings in this world is when everybody gets along and that's why the evil inclination, the Satan, tries to stop people from getting along because he knows when they get along, as in the words of the Tzemach Tzedek, when people are ba'achtus in unity, that will bring Mashiach. Finish with this interesting anecdote the previous Rebbe once said. The previous Rebbe, once somebody came, the doctor came to give him a shot. He gave him an injection. When he came to give him an injection, before the doctor came to give him an injection, he went and he washed his hands, he put on gloves, he made sure there was sterile, everything that he caused before he would give him the injection. The previous Rebbe looked at this and he says, wow, before you inject, before you shtech, you know, before you give a prick at somebody else, Make sure your hands are clean. Make sure you're a hundred percent that there's no, there's no, there's no uh, other things involved that you're doing. That there's no bad that's coming from it. Mm-hmm. The most important thing that we can learn from all of this is 
Yes, there's a lot that we can correct and help the people around us. But we have to make sure it's done out of love, not, God forbid, of the opposite. Thank you.